Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. From Sony Music Entertainment and Campside Media, this is Infamous. I'm Vanessa Gregoriatis, and this is our third and final installment of The Pickup Artist Uncovered. Now, dating has perhaps never been more fraught. Back in the day, you just met people out in the wild, at your friends' parties, or at work, or at bars, and you'd know pretty quickly if you vibed or not. The internet obviously complicated all that. Not only do you have to worry about what your internet date is going to smell like in real life, but you might also have to worry about things like whether they're a secret misogynist who's deep into the manosphere, like our friend Jared. So how is anyone supposed to navigate dating these days? I called up a good friend of mine to find out. So this week on Infamous, we have Robin Kerman, who I've known since I was a wee, a wee lass. She is an author. She has written two books, Bradstreet Gate and The End of Getting Lost. They are sort of literary, thrillery, delicious novels that you can drink down. And she is also a therapist. She also knows a lot about falling in love, which she will talk about. (laughs) Which she won't get into today. (laughs) And so we thought we would give Robin a call to talk about the story you just heard about the pickup artist and love in general in this day and age. So hello, Robin. Hello, Vanessa. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's so nice to be here with you. You're a fabulous writer and also wrote something for Psychology Today recently that starts with a Shakespeare quote from The Merchant of Venice. I want to read this quote to you. Love is blind and lovers cannot see the pretty follies that themselves commit. What is the meaning of that quote? It's one of the earliest mentions of of this metaphor of love and blindness. This image has a very, very, very long history and has now answered our way of thinking generally about what, what happens when we meet someone that puts us in a state of infatuation or a state that mm. is, let's say, not our typical kind of grounded way of judging others. And I, you know, I've been interested, I think, both in my fiction and in some of my uh, psychoanalytic writing and research in the process that that we go through when we fall in love and what exactly is happening there. And, you know, from, from Freud on, there's a belief that we're really operating largely unconsciously when we fall in love. 
Yeah, so what did Freud say? I mean, I I always think it, you know, it goes back to the mother, right? Well, there's a lot of that in Freud for sure. <laughs> I mean, one one thing that Freud said is that the whole way that we're structured is this this id, right? Mm-hmm. These impulses, these wishes, and all that is unconscious and then the ego is supposed to be sort of the rider on the horse of the id. And this is particularly true in the case of love. And where, where mom comes in is that the, the sort of unconscious motivation tends to be to create some sort of replacement of the lost original love object, mm. which is usually the mom. Right. It doesn't really have to be. We know it gets more complicated than this. <laughs> but the but it's the is, breast. You know, it's like the, or the bottle. It's the breast or the bottle or some, you know, some feature of that early, early bond. And the idea is because of the incest taboo, we can't consciously seek to replicate that situation. Mm-hmm. So it's repressed and it's unconscious. And this is why, you know, in the sort of Freudian model, we are blind because we cannot know what is really driving us. And, and I would say that the sort of reasons that we have for falling in love with someone, I think Freud would think that they're all that work of the sort of conscious mind trying to think why somebody's a great catch is fairly distracting from the real point <laughs> and that we don't really know what's pulling us along. So what what did you make of this story about the pickup artist in Asheville? Well, you know, one thing I was thinking about is in relation to what we were just talking about, how much is love even a factor here? There's, right. there's much more coldness, I think, on both ends. Although I, I do think there are certain ways in which we can we can talk about how some of these moves, some of these rules for picking up women work or don't work in terms of some psychoanalytic ideas mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, for instance, negging. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think, I think what's part of the mistake here is that it's taken as some kind of universal, you know, all women like to be put down. That's not true. It, it doesn't work in one of Jared's dates, right? She, she's pissed off and rightly should be when he insults her. But let's say for certain women who are used to being put down, mm-hmm. that would appeal at an unconscious level. Right. Is it love? I don't, I, I you know. <laughs> oh, wait, I feel like negging works on all women, though. Do you think so? I don't know. What do you think? God, I hope not. I think that women carry, like, a lot of self-hate, right? And somehow react well because of the cultural structures that say, like, oh, you're not as good or something to a guy doing that. I mean, does negging also work on men? I guess is the question. Well, I will say, I think we all are attracted to things that feel a little bit out of our grasp. And I think when somebody puts you down a little bit, among other things that are probably going on in terms of, you know, urges to please and so on, it's also an indicator that they don't need us that much or that they might not want us. And I, I do think that there is something about this the unattainable object yeah. that always holds a little bit more allure. Right. So I you know, I think that's one of these the sort of tricks that these that these guys are doing is they're sort of flipping it from being the the chaser to being the rejector. Right. And they're sort of playing both roles simultaneously, but they're having more success because they're also rejecting while they're chasing. 
I like to think not all women fall for that, Vanessa, but probably some do. I mean, I guess depending on what your relationship was like with your parents. But I agree with you. I mean, the thing is just that the women in this story are really saying, like, I was just looking for casual sex, which, I mean, my understanding is women are very unlikely to just be looking like that, are sort of hardwired not to be that. So you wonder if they're sort of lying to themselves about it. You know, one thing that that in some ways interested me more than Jared's pathology and the guy's got some (laughs) was, you know, why these women are setting the bar so low. You know, you're setting the bar so low that you're disregarding all your disappointments and all your feelings. And this speaks to what you're talking about. Do women really want to feel like it's considerate for a guy to tell us that he can't sleep with us because he's got another woman on him? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, is that is that what we're waiting to hear? Do we, we think, oh, that's so sweet, at least he told me? I mean, a part of me feels like these women may feel that they're not entitled to expect more and therefore when they have what I think are fairly natural feelings like, God, that doesn't make me feel so special or cared for. They're disregarding it. Right. Right. And I think it's when we disregard our feelings and our instincts that we can get ourselves into situations where we're not happy with outcomes. (laughs) Why would they lie to themselves, though? Like, is that a self-protective measure then to say, like, I don't care about you, so I'm going to not be hurt by you because I actually don't care at all? I think so. They're all talking about not expecting much. The dating pool is very, very poor. They're not really looking for anything serious. And maybe they've been hurt and maybe they're afraid to open up their hearts to more. I do think it is self-protecting to expect very little because you think you won't be disappointed if you expect very little. But look how disappointed they are. He ends up being, you know, 10 times worse. So I, I think it's not a it's not a great strategy <laughs> right. to protect yourself by expecting very little because the bar can always go even further down. <laughs> it's true. So why do you think they kept dating him then? Like, what does that say about our culture and expectations for men versus women? Like, why is the bar so low for straight men a lot of the time? I was asking myself that, too. I mean, I live in Manhattan, and I'm not that familiar with the dating pool in small towns. Mm -hmm. But there was something so bleak in the description. And, you know, one thing that really does come across is, you know, what's going on with men Mm -hmm. in this story? I mean, the women seem to turn out all right. They move on. They have relationships. Mm -hmm. They, you know, start lives. This is sort of a blip. But the men seem caught in a... It's a bad situations. I mean, any town where Jared is the best catch is already very concerning. But, you know, he ends up in this sort of men's group, all these guys coming together. That, I mean, the story really does suggest a kind of men in crisis situation. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert in it, but the why of it, I know a lot's been written about that right now. What do you think, I mean, in your own practice and observing? What's going on with men? yeah. I mean, I will first of all say these men don't come into therapy and they don't, certainly don't come into therapy with women, oh, which right. was pointed out in the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't, he finds a male therapist and then he looks to other men to kind of understand what's happened to me. Can't tolerate, <laughs> you know, hearing anything right. from a woman. What's going on with men in society right now? I mean, I, there's, you know, tremendous 
transformations around gender happening and women are gaining a lot of opportunity and power. And I, I don't, you know, entirely know why this has to be met with some sort of collapse on the part of masculinity, mm-hmm. but there does seem to be something there. I, I don't feel equipped to speak to the psychological fragility of the entire <laughs> gender, <laughs> but I mean, there, there are some theories. Like what? <laughs> Well, I don't really know them super well, but let's just say, you know, men's development follows a slightly different path than women's in terms of how they they deal with leaving behind the mother as the primary object. This is in a very kind of, you know, classical model, sort of heterosexual, Mm -hmm. classic family structure, men, you know, father, mother, child, you know, this sort of classic edible triangle. The boy has to make a more radical separation from the mother than the girl does. She can stay identified with the mother. Why? And desire the father. Because she's a girl. She knows she's going to occupy a woman's role Hmm. and maintains that identification. She desires the father. She's in competition with the mother, but she can remain identified with the mother. The son has to become identified with the father and distance himself from the mother. And I suppose, you know, you could theorize that it's a kind of more violent kick. There's certainly a lot of violence toward women here. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about the family stories of these men. Yeah. I'm, I, I think one can surmise things didn't go well. There's a, there's a lot of trauma. Right. Which we don't hear anything about. We just know that it's a religious family. But, you know, one indicator of that is the way that Jared describes himself and certainly demonstrates himself to operate in a machine-like way, or I forget how he describes himself, that he's very mechanical. Mm -hmm. Everything is kind of rules. And then his conversation is like, here's your coffee. That's $10. Thank you. Like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy seems to really lack sensitivity to, to emotion, to human interaction he doesn't seem to have a sense of empathy and I mean even how to read people at all Mm -hmm. and to me that suggests that there's a lot of trauma in the household and he wasn't attended to emotionally his emotions weren't sort of mirrored he wasn't shown care or had you know appropriate reactions to whatever emotional states he was in and therefore he's really deficient and that he's using these kinds of rules to to fill in for something. But it's okay. When people talk about things like this, I'm like, well, then isn't every mo- shouldn't every mom just stay home with their kids for like the first year <laughs> oh, of you're life? Assuming that's what happened. I mean, that's the thing is, is that if you go to work eight hours a day and you commute, you know, I mean, I think this is part of why moms want to stay at home. But like you commute an hour on either side. How can you ever how can this child ever have a chance? You know, I it's entirely possible that mom was home or dad was home or whoever was home and maybe they weren't equipped. It really depends who's your caregiver, right? You know, if you're going to leave your child with a with a loving caregiver, they're getting something. But I don't think anyone would say that, you know, not caring for a child is going to have a good outcome. <laughs> there are plenty of parents who might be around and their mere presence does more damage than perhaps. <laughs> I mean, both of your parents are Freudian uh, psychoanalysts, I think, right? I hope they're not strictly Freudian. Okay. But uh, they, they are psychoanalysts. 
<laughs> do they bring their children up perfectly? Is that like the idea? Oh, that- just perfectly, perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> you know me, Vanessa. <laughs> Flawless. That must be so crazy. Daughter, I mean, that's a good a good TV show in itself. Daughter of an analyst. <laughs> Has that not been done with all these therapists? Oh shows? my God, it really should be done. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. Rocketmoney.com infamous. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So, Jared, no therapy except the men's therapy. And, I mean, do you think that these men's groups have have some some usefulness to them? I mean, there's men's groups now. It's a thing that happened in the 70s, right? And it's now a newly trendy thing again. I suppose, and it, it depends on how the whole thing is constructed. And, you know, to the extent that it's based on excluding women, it doesn't seem that, that helpful. Mm. But, um, you know, I think one of the things that's going on with Jared, and again, I know so little that it's it's really presumptuous for me to say anything at all. But, it, you know, one thing that came across when he was talking about posting about, you know, his, his various affairs, that, that it was joyless, that mm-hmm. the real motive was to get the approval of other men. He would drag himself out on dates when he would rather not go so that he could post the details to guys who would tell him he was a cool dude. Mm-hmm. That's what he said, right? So there is a real feeling that this is about some sort of recognition of his male identity 
you know, if we want to go back to the story I was telling you before about what it means to become a man and, and sort of push against the mother and then identify with a father, I don't know what went on there. And I'm just not a Freudian, mind you, but, you know, there's some feeling that he's not, he's really not sure of his identity mm-hmm. at all. And he's really not sure of his masculine identity. You know, it feels like these women are really tools in a process that has less to do with them and more to do with having a self-reflected back that makes them feel like a man. Right. Because they have such contempt for the women who fall for their tricks and sleep with them. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. very twisted, right? Like, how do you think about that? Well, it's part of the reason he doesn't seem to get any gratification from it. I I suppose if, if you have such contempt for the women you're conquering, then their conquest isn't really worth very much to you. And, you know, I think there's a sadness in it, too. There's a real sense that none of these women are taking Jared seriously as a real prospect. Right. So I wonder how much his diminishing them also has to do with a sense that he's never going to really get what he wants from these women. He's not going to get love. And so when the list comes, list of all my lays come out, you know, everyone in town sort of knows who's who and some very intimate details about sex lives. Like, what do you think that does to the women who are on that list? I mean, it's completely humiliating. He's reducing them to numbers. And there's something really exhibitionistic about this guy. I mean, even the fact that he gets caught and there's a lot of shame there and you know, I can't help when the shame stuff happens, I can't help but think a little bit about his religious upbringing and the the sort of what what exactly is attitude towards sexual desire and sexual connection in the church mm. because it seems like it's it's very degraded mm-hmm. and connected to shame. Mm-hmm. He creates shame in these women and then he gets caught and has his own sort of shameful exposure. It feels very bound up in shame to me, Yeah, what what he's doing to those women. So when you finally hear from him, do you have any sympathy for him when you hear him explain himself? And, like, as a therapist, what do you make of all this, like, therapy speak? Yeah. I, I, I kind of do. I mean, I think when I meet someone as a therapist, which is a sort of particular listening stance, mm-hmm. you do have th- – you do tend to have – Sympathy. I mean, if I look at it from another stance as a woman, certainly some of the things he says are very triggering and they're intended to be. Um, He, you know, he comes across to me as someone who is, as I said, just very lost. I mean, I think there's some real pathology underneath all this that goes a lot deeper than sort of surface misogyny. I mean, I'm, I'm sure a lot of misogyny is <laughs> attached to really serious pathology, but, you know, he can't, he can't connect yeah. to people. I mean, I don't know that he has any friends. I don't know that he, has, you know, it seems like these men's groups are just sort of this, you know, this healing situation is a way to connect, but he doesn't have any natural way to connect. And he describes himself as not knowing how to behave naturally. Mm. So there is something sad. Yeah. I mean, it's that sort of like hurt people, hurt people thing, you know? What about Trey? Like, why do you think he tried to help Jared? (laughs) Well, they're they're sort of similar in a way. It's these all these sort of wounded guys. The Trey thing is interesting, too, in the sense that 
it's, you know, it's described as his coming in and being quite scary. Mm. I mean, it, it, for me, it makes me wonder about the sort of the, the situation around the father mm-hmm. in, um, in Jared's life, because Trey comes in like a bully and like a kind of authoritarian personality, you know, yeah. I'm going to tell you how to live, but you're going to sort of be contrite. You're going to do the things and I'm going to get you into shape, really kind of a boot campy, like a very fatherly, but sort of abusive fatherly mm-hmm. role. And this, this seems to really communicate to Jared as love and care and nobody else cares but but Trey cares because he comes in in this very aggressive way, promising to to fix him. I don't know. It you know it makes it makes me wonder again about the connection to men and and manhood, yeah. and and what this is doing for Jared and how he's broken. But they're all broken. So he gets angry. So Trey gets angry at Rachel for challenging him. He yells yes. at her until she cries, and then he asks her on a date a few hours later. Like, yeah. Why do you think he did that? <laughs> Are you surprised by this? <laughs> Somehow I wasn't surprised by it. <laughs> Why not? I mean, because he he felt intimacy with her because she cried, I think. I think, you know, I think that a lot of these guys are really craving intimacy. They're terrified of it. Mm-hmm. They're terrified of intimacy. They're terrified of dependency, but they're also deeply craving it. And I think the fact that she showed emotion and kind of got in there with him. It probably was very exciting. And maybe he misread it because they're misreading things all the time. These guys, they're not emotionally intelligent. He misread it for, for a different kind of intimacy, for something that could be romantic. And also it could be a power grab that, you know, they know how to relate to women as kind of sexual objects. So if she unsteadied him, he can sort of put her back in the role of ranking one to 10 body face personality. Yeah, yeah. Not that this was his game, but I mean, you know, that there's a sort of similar psychology there. Yeah. So it, it could be a way of, you know, sort of collecting his, his self again after his humiliation and feeling some power. Yeah. Like when she cried, she gave him back the power and he liked that feeling. Right. So he, he sort of asked her out. I mean, it could be part of that. Or he's so humiliated that he cried in front of her. Yeah. So he needs to minimize her. I mean, do you think Jared's story is really about power in the end? Or you seem to think it's really about this lack of childhood connection. I mean, I do. And I, th- I, I, think, I think it's about lack of identity. Mm-hmm. Lack of identity, of knowing yourself, you mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, this is what I was saying about sort of a suggestion of a deeper pathology. I think... I think that if you can imagine, and I know this sounds kind of extreme, that posting and then having people read it and reflect back that he's a cool dude or that, you know, he's a man is what is keeping his fragile ego together Mm -hmm. and making him feel like he's a man. And if he doesn't have that reflection, he's lost. Right. That's how I see it. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me that he ends up in this man's group in the end where I think they're just reflecting back mm-hmm. for one another. You're a man. No, you're a man. Like, yeah. you know? <laughs> but I mean, yeah. you're a man, you're a man is also kind of like you're a person. Right. You're, you're held together. You're, you know, that, that I think there's like a deep narcissistic wound. There's a real question about 
about selfhood there. So narcissistic wound is like there's a wound to your sense of self. Is that what it means? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a very sort of primitive injury. It, you know, narcissistic personalities, which everyone talks about, you know, there's this kind of, um, you know, grandiosity that helps kind of cover for a real sense that the person is nothing. I see. Whenever I hear about this, I'm like, isn't isn't that just the human condition? Like, isn't everybody well, just pretending? It's just pretending and being grandiose and hurt. Yes, to some to some degree. It's one of the nice things about being a therapist, or one of the terrifying things about being a therapist, is that sort of no matter who walks in, you recognize it in yourself. Right. <laughs> so we all have these features and we can all relate and that's the part you know they can find compassion right I mean <laughs> I would be <laughs> like the worst therapist because I would be sitting there I would love it because of voyeurism I would be so into it but then the idea <laughs> that I wouldn't be able to say like oh yeah you know that when I was 16 this thing also happened to me right you're not allowed to say that oh that's a rough one <laughs> It's true. But I do think there are ways in which you can convey understanding. You just kind of don't, you know, you don't share the details. But I, I draw a lot, and I think all therapists do, on their their sort of their own experience and empathy. But of, then just nodding back, like a nod that has a lot of import. Well, I'm, not, I'm not a nodder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a talker, not a nodder. Right, okay. But it's just, I guess it's a question of what you share and what you don't. And the, the patient can always speculate. I'm sure they're so curious about you. But so the so do you think this story could have happened without online and dating apps? And like, how has that all changed the way people behave towards each other? I think the technology is is significant, actually, on two fronts. One is the dating apps, which really affect the women's psychology, too. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you're kind of already in trouble when finding a relationship isn't that different than, you know, ordering a comforter like for your bed yeah you know I mean (laughs) you're already in trouble because it's so easy and there's so many options and there's no human connection it's done very mechanically people like Jared so unnatural and weird it's so unnatural and so people like Jared who don't have a lot of sort of natural capacities but you know can kind of make a few moves can get fairly far with a lot of women the women have already kind of lowered expectations because you're going on on so many dates that you would not be on if you were following the ordinary flow of life and moving toward those people who actually attract you <laughs> as opposed to sort of going through a pictures or, you know, a sentence here or there. The women that, that are going for this sounds like from the interviews are people that really aren't looking for much. Mm-hmm. So the whole situation is kind of cold and a bit transactional. I mean, the women come in with a warmer kind of attitude toward this. We're going to have fun, easygoing, whatever. But but there's there's already something about, I think, online dating that can feel very cold and transactional. So I think that's that's part of the story. And then the other part of the story is is his blog and, and the sort of online community that he's a part of with these men where he's you know, really performing, mm. I think, more than with these women. Yeah. So if you didn't have any of that, I don't know, it would just be some guy bragging in a in a bar to some guys. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it would take on the scale. Yeah, for sure. 
I mean, the funny thing is, is in online dating, you do wonder if people are being sold a completely fake v- vision of this person they're about to meet, right? Like, and how mm-hmm. long does it take to then course correct and be like, oh, here's what this person really is. Like, it just seems to me like the online thing creates love as even blinder, right, than mm-hmm. Chaucer when he in the, you know, 14th century is putting Cupid in a, a blindfold and writing about that. Like, it's the mm-hmm. ultimate love is blind, is the idea that you would meet this person by their digital image. I mean, there's certainly a lot of space for fantasy and a lot of space for hiding. Mm-hmm in online dating, a lot of false presentation involved. That's for sure. How do you then stop yourself from picking partners who end up feeling like big mistakes? Like how how do you keep your sense of orientation and your balance? I mean, I think it's hard. I, you know, this goes back to what I was saying about the the women maybe talking themselves out of their feelings. It's it's a it's a tricky matter because your your feelings can deceive you for sure. Mm-hmm. And we all get caught up in in fantasies. But I, I sometimes I think the real danger is our logical minds mm-hmm. coming in and kind of talking ourselves out of something we knew felt bad. Right. You know? And I think a lot of that goes on here and I, I think goes on in general where people, you know, they'll walk away from a date actually feeling like shit, feeling pretty awful or pretty unsteadied. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, call up their friends and have a conversation and talk themselves into, right. oh, but I'm just, you know, I think I'm just scared for my last relationship. <laughs> or, you know, I think I really like him and therefore I'm getting freaked out. Or, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, if you yeah. have kind of a good relationship history and you have a good upbringing, you can probably gain a lot from lis- listening to your internal compass. If you if you have a really bad one, it gets even harder because then I think you need to correct for the fact that you might be attracted to the wrong things. Well, then you should seek help. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just always think of that Chris, famous Chris Rock line where there's only two options in life. There's single and lonely and married and bored. That's it. That's all there is. You can also be married and lonely and single and bored. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying that, like, when you're single, you end up going out with a lot of people that you, sure. you know, I, I have so many friends who are getting older who are just like, I don't even want to date at all. Like, I don't even want to go on this date because mm-hmm. I know how it's going to end up and it's just too stupid. I can't deal with it. Well, there's a lot of disappointment I and I get it. I mean, I think what... What is really sad about this story and, it, it, you know, in connection to what you're saying is that, I mean, nobody is finding love here. Mm. Nobody is finding a real human connection. Mm-hmm. I guess these women in the end find something with somebody else, but that's sort of on the periphery of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what is going on. Maybe people always were mostly lonely and just, you know, forced into relationships that didn't really meet their needs. But there's something you know, very sad about the inability for for people to actually genuinely connect. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. 
But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wandery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Infamous from Campside Media. So, okay, if you were writing a screenplay about this, what would the third act be? I think Jared and uh, Trey should have have a love affair. <laughs> That's true. That would be the good. That would be a good ending. That would be perfect, actually. Um, so in... In talking about how we fix all of this, you write that treatment includes becoming attuned to feelings and fantasies excluded from awareness and facing the pain and disappointment around how our caregivers, present and past, have failed to love us as we needed. In the end, to see clearly in love, we must shift from the wishful romantic mode to a more tragic one where greater acceptance of reality grants us the power to alter our romantic destinies, but also lands us in the mature territory of ambivalence and grief. This sounds like, but basically we just have to come to your office and pay you some money to do that? Like, how do we do that? That's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) That was a mouthful, I know, and I cut some stuff Did I write that? Um... (laughs) Yeah, it it's sort of like it's sort of saying you have to come to my office and pay me to do that. I mean, I think I I am probably making a plug for you know. Do you really have to pay an analyst to do it? I mean, mm-hmm. it's awfully helpful. I you know, especially if if you find yourself in situations where you're really repeating bad patterns or finding bad partners, you probably should get some help in there. But you know, yeah. the the idea is basically to understand what happened in those early relationships to stop kind of magically hoping that someone's going to repair it, that, you know, this time you're going to get the rejecting guy, but he's going to love you like your daddy never did, right? (laughs) To sort of know that you're operating on some sort of unconscious fantasy, (laughs) right? Yeah. And sort of grieve the fact that you're never going to get that. That's not going to be how it's going to work out. So you kind of have to grieve something in the early relationship to free yourself. Right. To then maybe have a new experience. If you can do that on your own, bravo. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Robin, thank you so much for being here with us this week. My pleasure, Vanessa. It was really fun. Thanks for listening, everyone. Obviously, Robin has not met Jared or his family for therapy, but she has a lot of insight. Next week, we'll be back with a different story. Please welcome the chairman of WWE, Vince McMahon. Welcome to Monday Night Raw! 
And raw is just such a gross term for what? Raw meat hitting each other or like... (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) She was really good. I need to be shrunk by this woman. She's really pretty good, you know? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.